Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. It's my great pleasure to welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, Pearl Gluck, who is a Jewish American filmmaker and professor, and her films, which explore themes of class, gender, and faith, have appeared as part of the Sundance Lab, as well as played at Cannes Film Festival, the Tribeca Film Festival, and on PBS. Pearl Gluck, thank you for joining us. It's really a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I want to start with a question about stars and bars. It's in development right now, and um, it really uh, captured my imagination. So I wondered if you can give us a brief intro to what the Stars and Bars is about. I am now living in central Pennsylvania, and I guess over the course of the last uh, 15 or so years that I've been making films, it's the world around me that uh, moved me to um, activism through my through my film project. And so in this case, I'm living here in central Pennsylvania. My first year that I got here, a friend of mine, who's a poet, a local poet, recommended that I meet someone in a town called Milheim, Pennsylvania, who um, started what was then called a flag war using Confederate flags and peace flags as a way to kick off tension and and maybe a little dialogue around um, questions of identity here. And that was before Charlottesville, and it was uh, certainly before the shooting in Pittsburgh uh, at the Tree of Life Synagogue. So I just knew this was going to be my next project. That was 2015. Um, I wanted to look at the question of Confederate flags being this kind of subtle and for some people, not so subtle way of expressing, for lack of a better term, um, hatred or or disregard for whether it be Judaism or race or anyone other than who that Confederate flag was supposed to represent. And, um, you know, a lot of people say that's not the case. The Confederate flag is about American identity. It's part of our history. And we know the debates. We read the debates. They're very current right now. In 15, it wasn't that current. Um, and at the time, I'd spoken to a scholar um, to kind of uh, explore with him here at Penn State, you know, what's going on with white supremacy in the United States, with neo-Nazism. And he said, neo-Nazism is a thing of the past. And then Charlottesville happened. Um, and it was so shocking on so many levels, including this one for me personally, because I was writing this project and I was hoping that this scholar would be right. Um, but unfortunately, he was wrong. And I decided to look a little more deeply on um, at how something that appears to be subtle and just local and quiet can actually rise up into all out and open expression of hatred and or what we're seeing a lot more of now, which is kind of that lone terrorism that gets inspired by this kind of language that's being used, unfortunately, by our by our leadership. And, you know, they'll come out there with a gun in a church, in a synagogue, in a grocery store, and express what they believe they're being told to express. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm very deeply connected to uh, my own background as a, a survivor's grandchild. And those two uh, narratives um, meet somewhere toward the end of the film. I want right. to ask you if there's anything about the desire to fly the Confederate flag that that um, that represents an argument that you kind of buy. I mean, even 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 partially, or or is there anything with which you empathize when it's it an excellent question? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. In fact, that's the whole reason I'm doing this film, which is 
to give voice to some degree so we can understand, I don't want to use the word, word the other side, but at least that perspective, because I think the divisive nature right now in our country is what's hurting us on both sides of the, of the, of the, of the perspective. The story that it's based on is um, a story about a woman who, in, she, I believe she's in her 80s, she was jogging one morning, and it was the morning before um, a biker um, gathering. There's mountain biking um, excursion that happens once a year here, and people come from all over the world to bike here because it's beautiful. And the day before, a local uh, woman in her 80s was out there um, jogging, and she saw this huge Confederate flag right by the, by the bridge where they start the bike ride and she knocked on this guy's door and she's known him for years. I mean, he was raised there. He's half her age. So she's known him since he's in diapers. And she asked him if he wouldn't mind just removing the flag. Uh, just, you know, so the, so the people coming from all over the world don't think that everybody stands for this in this town. Um, that, you know, it's okay. He has it, but maybe, maybe when outsiders come in, there might be a lack of understanding of the fact that we're actually open here for everybody. And he basically in the nicest way told her, this is my, land this is my lawn and i'm going to put what i want on my lawn and this is what i believe so i'm going to leave it here and so she's the one who then called her husband and asked him to order flags peace flags um so that they can put them up so they can show both perspectives i guess and i think he pressed the wrong button when he ordered the flags and rainbow flags showed up the next day (laughs) and so they put them up anyway which really pissed off some of the locals who are not um maybe as evolved as we would like them to be about being open. And so some even more, even more people put up Confederate flags. And then of course the peace flags showed up and those went up. So the, the dialogue that I was privy to that went back in with a documentary camera before I was writing the fiction and we interviewed the woman and we interviewed the man who put up his flag and we actually had them have a conversation with each other, you know, right there um, in front of the camera. We weren't going to use it for anything public, just for my own research. And what they were saying is that, you know, for him, it represents a piece of his American and family history. And for her, she was trying to say, you know, but some people are scared when they pass that flag. They don't feel welcome. And as much as they kept talking about it from each of their sides, they weren't finding a middle ground. Um, he did write me an email the next day and he said that he's he's removed the flag. But then we drove into town and it was still there. Um, and at this point, he had also put up um, All Lives Matter um, poster and, and some other things. Um, so, you know, it, it really is about not that I don't think in this particular individual case, I don't think he really was willing to listen. Where I do think there are some people, if they knew what it could lead to. And again, this was before Charlottesville, this was before the Pittsburgh shooting in the synagogue and um, the shooting in the, in the church in the South. I, do, I don't think everybody's willing to listen. I, I like to believe that they would be, but I do think it's worth trying to have the conversation. I, I think there is a lot of in-between and that in-between is being stolen from us where people are kind of in that middle space and they wouldn't put out a flag, but now they feel like they have to pick sides. And, and I think that is what's going on. And I'd, I'd like to problematize that just a little bit and bring us back to a place where it's okay to be in the middle and trying to figure it out. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, 
digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I want to talk a little bit about your movie, Summer, uh, which is about uh, girls in a Hasidic summer camp who, uh, through literature, begin to embark on a journey of uh, self-discovery. I wonder if uh, Hasidic women have uh, seen the movie. I mean, women still in the fold and and how they've reacted to this or to other examples in your work of women's sexual awakening or sexuality. So the film, not to give too much away, but the film ends in a place where the girl that discovers that she's not straight, in fact, um, her pain is how the film ends, where she really asks, so is there no place for me in the Torah? Like, that's what's so painful for her. She wants a place in the Torah. So it's not really pulling out the Hasidic perspective on being a lesbian, but more saying, can you understand from this girl's perspective that she wants to belong and she's orthodox and she's very faith-driven and she wants a place in it? Um, so you asked about um, Orthodox people watching it at the film festivals that I have attended. I didn't notice anyone Hasidish there, but um, there is someone that I did talk to about it when I was writing it. And I kind of thought that she would be super judgy about it when I told her. And she said, uh, this is no big deal. We all know about that. We all go to camp now and we know that we're going to be experimenting with each other. And that was not the case when I was going to camp in the Hasidish world. But I guess that is the case to some degree now or enough for her to say that to me. Mm. So we'll see. Um, the film is going to be available soon online. And I think that's when we'll see what happens in the dialogue. And my hope is that it causes women to like, like we were saying earlier, just to start the conversation. I'm not saying I know the answer to what we discussed earlier or this. It's just that I feel like it's important to ask the question, you know, so where is there a place um, for someone like this? And also I think for me, the film also asks about, um, access, access to information mm-hmm. and access to knowledge, um, like our bodies ourselves and other books that they're asking them not to read. So another major theme in your work is uh, the straddling of and the crossing between boundaries and worlds. And your introduction to your documentary or the teaser to your documentary, Williamsburg, you spend a lot of time talking about the fact that Williamsburg is not only a very small place, but it's also a place that from the outsider's perspective looks like it's populated by people who are all the same. And you point out that it's in fact teeming with differences and it's, it's, it's worlds and worlds um, in close proximity that you can easily cross from one synagogue to the next. You know, you go to Kutzker and Brutzlov or whatever. But I'm interested in your personal story and that of some of your protagonists, such as Joel Baum and Malke, who, who cross boundaries of even more distant worlds and seem to echo perhaps some of the boundaries that you personally have straddled as well. So I wondered if you might elaborate a bit about yourself in relation to these two protagonists as, as straddlers of, of worlds. I do like to look at the in-between. So just like in summer, where you have uh, about a 15-year-old girl 
who's not going to give up her commitment to her orthodoxy and ultra-orthodoxy, but is now going to be struggling with how her other desires might connect to that world. Um, I'm, I am exploring the same thing in my newest short, which is um, Castles in the Sky, and it looks at a college class teacher, Malka, who slams poetry in the Lower East Side. And that's a huge difference between the world that she lives in, that's very modest, and she teaches modesty to these brides, and then she like, you know, slams these erotic poems to explore her own eroticism. And I love that she's in her 80s, because... I think people tend to forget that women of all ages, backgrounds, et cetera, have desires and um, like to express them in different ways. And so she likes to express it in her poetry. And one of her lines when she gets discovered to her protege, who is you know, questioning her on this, you know, she's like this, I do this for my poetry. It's the one thing Hitler couldn't take from me. Like he took my family, he took my fertility, but he could not take my poetry. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, when you look at, let's see them, people struggle in their own lives, trying to find themselves in their identities. And so in her case, she just had to hide it for a long time. And then when she gets discovered, spoiler alert, she chooses to stay in the community. She doesn't choose to leave because that is where her spirit and her heart is. And she'll have to find another way to deal with that. With Joel Baum, I was trying to look at a guy who, um, it was based on a true story about a man who was known to have murdered in cold blood, his Polish cleaning lady. He wasn't well, and he was dealing with that post-traumatic stress after the Holocaust. I find it very interesting that the Poles and the Jews have this intricate history in Poland and, and deeply tied to the Holocaust in different ways. For it to get recreated in a very strange way in Williamsburg is, is fascinating to me. And um, with this particular guy, I was trying to look at, you know, what if I took that real story and made it an accidental murder. Um, and then what happens next? So, you know, there you have a very conflicted character, but for very different reasons than what I later explored with Summer and, and Castle and what I will continue to explore, which is looking at women in the Hasidic community who are navigating their individuality within the world of faith in a way that I kind of navigated in a more subtle way outside of that world. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I do know what you mean. I actually wanted to ask you a question. And it's, it's, it's a slightly pushy, perhaps a chutzpahdik uh, question. So I think I noticed, and, and call me out if I'm being unfair, but I think I noticed a dynamic which I've seen with many, many people, including myself. A lot of people do this, which is that we, we have a history that we actually affirmatively distance ourselves from, and yet we trade on it. We, we use that mm-hmm. history uh, as a, uh, a tool for legitimacy to convey something, even though we've actually abandoned it or, or rejected it, or at least largely so. Is, is it unfair of me to, to, to see you doing that? And if so, what's, what's that all about? Less so much a trading on it as it is a constant dance with my identity. Like we change over time in our lives. And as artists, I believe, at least in my case, I believe it is my responsibility to be an activist through it. So things that I want to see shift or change because of my knowledge of where I come from and who I am, I instill in my work. So yes, I I agree with you on that level completely. And, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to have it. I'm so, I think what what I'm most fortunate to have is a background of valuing storytelling, like whether it's the Mm -hmm. literal ritual, you know, in Judaism, or it's the specific tradition 
in Hasidism, right? Yeah. So like yeah. sitting around at the Seder on Passover and constantly retelling the story or the Megillah on Purim or, you know, even Hanukkah, you know, constantly creating ritual around the story and we're reliving our history over and over again and making it relevant to where we are today. And yes. then Hasidim is so specific that, you know, you're supposed to tell stories. And in fact, it's patriarchal. It's a man's voice. Generally, women are, they have other roles and they're considered just as valuable, but they're not to be orators, right? Or storytellers. That's where I, you know, turned it on its head just a bit. So for that, I'm extremely grateful that I was given such a value system associated with storytelling and teaching. I, I, I get it. I totally get it. And, and those of us who are not uh, connected deeply to the Hasidic community, we one of the things we most know about the Hasidic tradition is the storytelling tradition. Because if we read every, anything, we read uh, Shifchei HaBesht, the glorification of the founder of Hasidism, the Baal Shem Tov. So, so uh, I, I, I totally get that. And I get how that remains authentic, even as you have walked away from other aspects of the tradition. Uh, your your movie Junior is a film adaptation of Ella J. Stewart's one woman show about an African American mother who's preparing to attend the funeral of her son, who was killed mm-hmm. by a police officer. And as I understand it, it's a fictional story uh, with uh, Ms. Stewart, who compiled it from real events and interviews. You say, "quote." As a filmmaker, my work is inspired by the concept of tikkun olam, leaving the world a better place than how I found it. The moment I saw Ms. Stewart's work on stage, I knew that collaborating with her on developing this voice on film would be an opportunity to be a vessel for change, close quote. When did you first hear the term tikkun olam in this meaning? So I I think I got to attribute that to my first crime, which is going to college. So I think I first heard it when I was at Brandeis. We went on a trip to DC to fight for Pollard at the time. And that's, I think, where I heard that term, like that full-on Hebrew with that accent, tikkun olam, as opposed to tikkun olam. And, you know, that was the big break from the community is when I went to college. So that's interesting that that's what kicked me off to be so more so deeply Jewish in a way in, in the work that I didn't, I've done from then on, which is driven by that concept. I ask because it's a bit of a contentious term these days in the liberal world, in the reform movement and from critics of the reform movement from outside the movement, there is a sense of um, overemphasis uh, of tikkun olam to the point where it overshadows or stultifies or somehow diverts attention from uh, the other dimensions of richness within the Jewish tradition in favor of what in English people often call social justice. And, 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 and I can see how, uh, how passionately your work is infused with tikkun olam. That, that in and of itself is not surprising to me. But, but what's, what presents me with an interesting uh, query for research is how, how does that notion of tikkun olam uh, develop in the Jewish world differently from the various uh, Jewish perspectives. And since you are a straddler of worlds, as I said before, this term um, is an interesting test of that. I think my interest in things outside of Jews and Judaism would be questionable from where I, I originated. But 
sometimes I think American Jews and specifically even ultra Orthodox ones forget how we got here and how hard it was for us to live our relatively comfortable lives here um, and how the fact that we can pass to some degree, if you're not ultra Orthodox and you are white and meaning Ashkenazi, you know, more, more Ashkenazi, you can pass as white. So I think we forget some of that. And um, certainly where I'm from, there's so much concern about keeping the flame of ultra-Orthodoxy alive and making sure all your generations remain in the Hasidic world. There isn't a lot of time to look outside and say, you know, what am I doing to help this stay a place that's open and make it even more open? And I feel like I'm, in, I'm positioned well to do that through my work because I'm not in that world only anymore. And I, I feel like I can bring something to that understanding. So for a mother to be crying about burying her child, I instantly thought about my grandmother um, who lost her own daughter or my, you know, my grandmother's mother and, you know, who lost nine children in the Holocaust. Like for me, it's always somehow connected to looking at the struggle of of loss and really not forgetting that and understanding how hard it was to get to where we are right now, at least in America, you know, and at least among those of us that have enough comfort to be able to take a minute and look at that, you know, and by no means am I saying there aren't Jews that are struggling with poverty, struggling with issues of belonging and, and finding a place. But it's interesting every year when Halloween comes around, People wonder why? Why don't you? Why don't you guys celebrate Halloween? Is it because you didn't when you were Hasidish? I'm like, you know, it's not even that. It's that we were dismissed early from school because they would throw eggs at the school buses that were that had Yiddish writing on it, or the the people that they knew were Jewish. Like, it was not safe in the fullest sense of the world. The word back in the 80s, you know, in Brooklyn, you know, on Halloween, we we'd have eggs thrown at us. So I have I remember that every year and. Nothing compared to the, the 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 stuff that had to be overcome by generations before us. So I just I don't think it's smart to let go of that. But I also think we have to be careful because, of course, there's the other um, reality, which is that oh, American Jews are always looking back at the Holocaust. You have to get past it. Well, that might be true on certain levels, but I don't think that's true in general. You know, and and I I think it's because sometimes we forget what the lessons actually are. And, you know, when you look at what happened in Pittsburgh, one of the things that really upset this man, the shooter, was Hayes. And, you know, Hayes was right. a Hebrew immigrant, right? That helped our people get here, you know? And, and now it helps other refugees that are not Jewish. And it's still a Jewish organization. And I support it. I highly support it. And I think we forget that connection. I do. Um, and it's, I understand with a lot of issues that we have to be worried about, but this is something that, that really key, I have the time. And in fact, this is my work to look at it. I just want to clarify, Hyas is the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which um, shepherded uh, thousands and thousands of Jews over a hundred years ago into this country and continues to shepherd uh, needy immigrants and refugees. It's a legacy Jewish organization and a, and a wonderful, wonderful source of pride for the Jewish community that we that we have highest. So I agree with you completely. 
Well, we're fortunate to have your films, and uh, I consider myself fortunate to have gotten to know you. And I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us about your amazing work and share your thoughts uh, together with us on the College Commons podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.